Hello, welcome to the Radiate Podcast. We're here to connect, encourage, and empower you to radiate the message of Jesus to yourself, your neighbors, and the world. I'm your host, Steve Presswood. Today I'm visiting in person at the home of my Radiate Podcast guest, Mike Story. Mike, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Mike is a great friend of mine. He was a pastor for how many years? About 32. 32, after which he directed the BCM, or the Baptist Collegiate Mission, at Oklahoma State for, what was it, seven years? Right at seven. Right at seven years. Mike, I've got the ball rolling a little bit. Keep it in play and tell our podcast audience a few more interesting facts about yourself. I don't know how interesting myself is. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to me, but that I was an oil field kid. We grew up moving about every nine months. So I've lived like my high school years, for example. I went to three high schools in two states and two countries mm. over three years. So moving was a part of our lives. Church was a part of the fabric of our life. Uh, my mother was the spiritual leader. My dad was the earn the bacon, mama raised the kids. Saw him on the average of about three days a month because he was gone. Because of the oil fields. Because of the oil fields. So oil field trash, that's where I came from. <laughs> well, your testimony, Mike, has always fascinated me, and I think in part that has to do with the fact that you and I grew up at the same time period. So mm -hmm. the things you talk about are part of my youth as well as they were yours. Uh, but I think uh, the other thing is that you were more out there, as we used to say, than uh, than perhaps I was because of how I grew up. Um, you've characterized your younger self, from what I remember in discussions we've had in the past, as a hippie mm. turned Jesus freak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so there's a start. Would you give us sort of a condensed version of your testimony? How did you come to faith in Christ? In 1967, we were moving to Norway. And I remember I was at a camp. Is, is Norway part of the oil field for you? The North Sea. The North Sea, okay. Gotcha. My dad worked on a drilling ship yeah. called the drill ship, an old whaler that was converted to drill oil. Wow. And so we moved to Stavanger, Norway. <laughs> but before we went, I realized at this youth camp that if our plane crashed, I was in a bad place. I'd gone to church all my life, enjoyed it, actually. Uh, but realized I didn't have a relationship with Christ. So in 1967, I believe I was born again. But there were problems that came not from being born again, but from what didn't take place afterwards. And so that's when my spiritual journey began and a lot of my problems. There's nothing worse than to have a relationship with Christ and not know what to do with it. Mm. You're angry, you're frustrated, uh, you're without direction, your purpose is foggy, and you're mad at God. And so I was all of the above. Mm. So in 67, the jury began, but I was, for example, very pro-military prior to 1967. Wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, wanted to be a pilot, uh, wanted to f fly in the Air Force and make that a career. I talked about that all my life as a kid. There was a war going on in Vietnam, and I was planning on going as a pilot. That, that was my aspiration. And we moved to Europe. And I would see things like Der Spiegel. I would see Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, from a different slant than the U.S. got, see the pictures of the body bags. And then it dawned on me, I couldn't vote. I could go fight. I could go die. 
but I couldn't vote because I was not old enough. You had to be 21 to vote. And that just hit me wrong. Hmm. I was also exposed to alcohol and other silly things while in Norway in the relating years that followed. That all changed my perspective, my direction, the things that I valued. I began to question everything. And as I mentioned earlier, I had no purpose, no direction. I was going a thousand miles an hour, but had no clear landing site. I was going to crash on reentry. We like to call that in the flying world, being all thrust and no vector. That was me. <laughs> Whatever that meant. Going fast, you know, and yeah. but, but don't know where you're going with it. That's right. I mean, I had no direction. Yeah. Impulsive. The real issue that began when I became a Christian was I had no follow-up. I didn't know about follow-up, but I didn't know to read my Bible, even though I was raised in church. Mm. My mother read it to me as a child. I thought that was her job, not mine. A mother can't disciple a 16, 17-year-old teenage boy, at least can't do it well. My mother prayed for me. She read the Bible every morning before school, didn't like it, got turned off to it. My dad didn't participate at all. He just couldn't understand why I was changing in my attitudes. He couldn't understand the value turn that was taking place. But I look back and I see no one taught me how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible. No one showed me how to pray effectively. No one came alongside me. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying those things took their toll as I had this relationship that I really believed. If you would have asked me, would you go to heaven when you die? I would say, yeah. But I couldn't go much further than that. Other than that, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, but I didn't know what it meant to live for him. That all changed in 1971. I picked a guy up in Oklahoma City. We couldn't get jobs. There was no market for fur balls with no skills. And we were unmotivated too. When you call yourself a fur ball, you're long talking hair. about you. <laughs> long hair freaks. Um, just what we were. I had the president of the school I went to called me a cultural black hole. I was in trouble. I was on social and academic probation. You have to work hard to be on social probation. <laughs> but the real reality is I was miserable. Hmm. Uh, a friend of mine that I led to Christ a year later said he quit hanging out with me because we'd go to parties and do the same things. And he said, we're having a great time and you're over there sulking. He said, you were water on a fire every time. He said, I hated being around you. You were so miserable. That was my life, especially as I got older. So in 1971, I met this guy, and we ended up in my Volkswagen heading north to Colorado from Oklahoma City. I'd lived the last four years doing stupid, not thought through things, not realizing consequences of some things. I didn't think about the consequence of this guy. He was a radical Christian, a fanatic Christian. I later defined fanatic as someone who loves Jesus more than you do. <laughs> Every time we saw a hitchhiker, this is 1971, he had to stop and share the gospel with him. I would remember slumping down in my Volkswagen, pulling my hair over my face, embarrassed to death what he was doing. Introduced him to girls I knew in Colorado, introduced him to my buddies, and he shared Christ with all of them. We were in a park in Greeley, Colorado, where there was a curfew, and the police came, me and some girls and guys, we, were, we took off running. This is that same little journey to Colorado. And 
he stayed behind to witness to the police. <laughs> but not only did he share the gospel with everything that he meant, he would not go to bed until he had led one person to Christ today. So after three and a half days with this guy in the mountains, I was about to go insane. And then he ran into a buddy of his that was just like him, that was from Tulsa, that was up at Estes Park hanging out. I'm in stereophonic fanatic Christian land, and I'm in the middle. I came to a place that I wanted to have a relationship with Christ like they did. It wasn't about church. It wasn't about program. It wasn't about methodology. It was about a relationship. And I saw them reading their Bibles daily. I saw them praying. I heard the things they prayed for, the things that they addressed. They didn't curse. They didn't look at women the way I did. They didn't look at life like I did. But I had an inward hunger to be like they were. So in 71, I had a lordship. And I know some people have a problem with saying that because it all takes place. Jesus was Lord in 67. I just didn't know how to implement that. Jesus was the Lord and sovereign over my life. But I made a lot of stupid choices based on ignorance, based on a lack of information. I now knew that if I'm going to grow in my relationship, I have to get serious about the Bible, about prayer, about the people I hang with. Even this mystery called the church, which I didn't understand and sometimes still don't. But I had to make sure that I was a, a guy that was walking his talk. That became very important to me in 1971. So, 67, born again, 71, after four years of stupidity, came to my senses and asked him to take control of everything I understood. And there were many things I didn't know. I, I didn't know where that path would lead. Mm. I just knew I wanted to walk with him. And I knew I couldn't walk it by myself. So, that in a nutshell is how I'm here. That's fun. You have such a wealth of experience, both at being a disciple and making disciples, and just so that we uh, <clears throat> can put you in context. All right, so you said you came to faith in Christ about 18 or 19, maybe, in 67? Uh, 16. Yeah, you're 16. Okay, yeah, so you're in your late 60s now? Yeah. That just helps people get a handle on you. Now, you look pretty good for a guy at your age. Uh, so anyway, so I, I, have much, likes, I have much to aspire to. <laughs> anyway, you've had a wealth of experience, both being a disciple, following Christ, and then trying to help others do the same. I want you to reflect some today on your experiences there, and I think I'd like to start with your experience of being a disciple, of walking with Jesus. What has kept you pressing toward that goal? I think there's quite a few things, but one is I heard this from an old navigator named John Crawford about the, the precious promises of God's Word. And I really do think realizing that God does everything He promises. He doesn't leave any of them unfulfilled. I've lived long enough and had enough storms in my life and enough battles in my life and enough positive and good to see that God really does fulfill every promise He makes. And so that has been a tremendous blessing. Another blessing for me is the friends. I had a lot of acquaintances before, but now I have eternal friends, buddies that will be with not just here, but in eternity. You and I worked together at Oklahoma State. You were a gift to me, and people like you have been gifts over the years. That guy that told me I was miserable and he didn't want to hang with me anymore, <laughs> I got to lead him to Christ a year later. 
And my friend's name was Randy. And he would say, I had a virus or I was holding out drugs. <laughs> but one evening, after I'd taken my girlfriend, who later became my wife, back to the dorm, uh, he came into my apartment and said, Stuart, I don't know what you got, but you're driving me nuts and I want it too. <laughs> and Randy was my best man, was my best bud. He died to go home with Jesus a couple years ago. But the richness of relationships, as I'd put it, is invaluable. And I'm a wealthy man because of the friends God has given me, the mm. like-hearted, similarly purpose-driven friends mm. who have given their life to the same thing. So the promises of God found in the Scripture, the relationships are two areas that are just tremendous to me. I had no idea how great the wealth of friends and promises would be for me as a Christian, but it's been wonderful. I got to go back and ask a question about uh, something that you talked about earlier. You said you had this friend that you drove to Colorado with, yeah. but you didn't name him. Who is he? His name was John Malden. I've lost track with John over the years. I don't know how he ended. I don't know if he ended well, because just because we have a good start doesn't mean we end well. I've seen some really godly guys end poorly. I hope he has. Yeah. Last time I saw him, it was in the 1980s. Yeah. I haven't seen him since. Okay, so following Christ, I just want to track on this this side of things. What's it been like in your experience following Jesus? What's been the hardest thing for you about following Christ? Well, this sounds weird, perhaps. Being married, raising a family, <laughs> they're hard because I'm a an alpha. I'm a driven person. Uh, I'd have never known. <laughs> And I'm quite calm now, but sometimes it caused me to just press on and I probably hurt my relationship with my bride because I wasn't sensitive. I wasn't always kind. Sometimes I would put the priority of my task at the expense of family. I don't have much regret about those things, but I can see how they hurt. Now, I have a godly, righteous bride. I have a son in full-time Christian ministry and another son that I believe has a relationship with Christ but isn't necessarily walking with God this time. I wish I could have been more tender. I wish I could have been more thoughtful. But I can't change what was. I was consumed with being a disciple who makes disciples. It was like a bonfire was started in my life because something I didn't share. Though the Lordship journey began in 71, I began to wonder. I'd led hundreds of people to Christ on our campus and different campuses I would go to, churches I would speak in. And I'd see so many of them fall away. And I began to wonder, what's wrong with these people? My presentation's thorough, and <laughs> that's not the problem. What's wrong? So I decided they weren't tough enough forgetting my own journey, that I didn't have someone to invest. But in 1976, the state of Colorado, I was, I was a youth pastor, sent me to a conference that turned out to be the wrong conference, and it was led by Max Barnett. <laughs> and that filled the void. What was missing was me being a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ, an imitator of Jesus, who intentionally and deliberately would reproduce that in other people. And that began a journey that consumed me. That consumption, Luke 14, 25 through 33, really became, 
a mantra for me. If any man would come after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, brother and sister, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I wanted there to be no mistake. I love Jesus more than anything. So you might have got that just a little out of balance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so many men, I think, at the end of their lives are able to look back and say, gosh, I wish I'd have been yeah. more tender and so forth. So for any of you young men listening to this podcast, I'd recommend that you take heed. Yeah. Good to get that one figured out early. Yeah. Tenderness and kindness and gentleness, all characteristics that God exhibits Amen. are ones he wants us to as well. I will say this, Steve, that I, again, it's not pride. I don't have a lot of regret because I'm, I'm wired this way. But I am grateful for men along the way who would speak to me mm. and call things to my attention that I just didn't see. I would rather restrain a fanatic any day than resurrect a corpse. <laughs> and so I would still rather deal with a guy that's overly consumed about Jesus, that we need to pull the reins back to focus on loving his wife and his kids along the way to be tender and kind, than to have that old boy that puts wife and children before God and has to get wife's permission or children's permission to obey the word. That one's a hard one to dislodge. Yeah. And so for that, I'm grateful. Yeah. So you shared what you felt like is the hardest thing about following Christ. What's been one of the most rewarding things for you about following Christ? Uh, my quiet time. The quiet time, the daily encounter with Christ has just been the sustaining life force mm -hmm. that gives me nutrition, direction, uh, reinforcement. Uh, it's been a joy. I think the joy of leading people to Christ, to realize that God uses me in this divine process of reconciliation and redemption, to see lives transformed, to see lives changed, and then to see my children follow the truth. Mm -hmm. I use that out of 3 John 4, they're not my children, but God lets me in their life and to invest in them deep enough, long enough to see them established and repeated. It just doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Okay, so let's move now to uh, the business of making disciples. Jesus told a parable, and I want to use this maybe as a backdrop, a launching pad for some of the rest of our discussion, the parable of the soils, mm -hmm. where there were four soil types. And uh, he's saying uh, in his explanation that these soil types represent the heart condition of various people and how they respond to the Word of God curious, what would you say, in rough percentage terms, how many people are in each category? Uh, who who responds percentage-wise as hard soil? Uh, what's the percentage of people that respond in each of those successive categories? This is just an easy breakdown for me, but I'm not saying these are spot on. Right. 30% hard soil, the path, 30% rocks, 30% thorns, and 10% good soil. Mm. That may be optimistic. Yeah, so not really that many people in the good soil category. That's right. Which is curious because no farmer ever throws his seed intentionally in the wrong place. That's correct. But that's not what Jesus' parable is about, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, the parable is really just about uh, the way the soil responds. Yeah. Good soil responds well. So that's what uh, I'm sure God wants us to look for as uh, he looks for it as well. But what is the thing that makes that percentage of good soil so low? 
I think the three factors that are listed before, what the rocks represent, no roots, the thorns, love of this world and the path, they just don't get it, they just don't receive it, all play a broad spectrum of influence on why people don't. There are just a lot of distractions. I mean, you have to focus. Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part of the kingdom of God. Many of the disciples ceased to follow after him in John chapter 6. He turned to his fellows and said, will you also leave? And Peter said a marvelous thing, Lord, where shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You got to be looking for that. You got to be open to that. You got to be receptive to hear that. And there's just not that many people that are. The, Satan has blinded the eyes and deafen the ears and lured us to death with things that are immediately attractive. And so there are other factors, theological, there are spiritual issues, but in a nutshell, I just think there's just too many distractions. Mike, you bring up an interesting passage and I feel like we'll be taking a little bit of a detour here to address it, but I'd like to because you brought it up. What do you think Jesus means? What is he getting at when he says those words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me? I think unless we're totally absorbed, totally committed to the person of Jesus Christ, they didn't fully understand where that was going at that time. I do. You do. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. Unless I immerse myself in the truth of that text, that the broken body was for Mike's story, the blood that was shed was for Mike's story. Only his blood could wash my sins away. Only him dying on a cross for my sins could pay the toll on my sins. Unless I can identify with that and believe it with all my heart and build my life on that premise. Yeah, so the point is not just the salvation side of this, that he gave his life on the cross, but that the very life that he lived is the one that he wants us to to model our lives after. That's exactly right. It's the Galatians 2.20. The problem is he created me in his image, so I make choices. I can rebel, I can obey, I can follow, I can reject. I have all these tendencies. I make choices. If I choose wisely, I die to self. I die to my self-centeredness by choice, and I yield to his control, his lordship, his directive. And in obedience, I follow. Foolishly, I don't. And I pay the consequence. Mm. What can the person who wants to make disciples do, if anything, to help people move from the first three categories? And we, let's just spend some time here. So if you wanted to help someone move from the, the category of hard path, yeah. what would you do to help them move more toward fourth soil? I think exposure to the hearing of the word. They receive it, but they can't understand it. They receive it, but they can't hear it. They receive it, and the bird comes and plucks it away, the lure of the world, all that's here. They're just too busy. They just don't have time. They just don't care. But I think if we just don't give up, I've got a good friend lives down here by me that I became a person God used to bring him into relation with Christ a number of years ago, 30-plus years ago. And the first time he invited me over his home, he said, just don't start talking about that Jesus stuff or I'll throw you out. (laughs) So I went and shared my testimony. He didn't throw me out. But a number of months later, he would have been hard path. 
He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't looking for church. He got in trouble with his wife, so he went to church hmm. just to appease her. And out of that, an interest was perked. But I gave him scripture and scripture, and he saw it lived out in my life. Yeah, I think there must be so much to that that sometimes we may miss. That's right. The quality of my life has the possibility to impact someone else. That's right. So just like the friend that you said you drove to Colorado with, his life was so compelling right. that you said, I got to have what he that's has. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think that's the essence. They not only hear the gospel, that's where it begins. Faith comes by hearing. They see the gospel. Yep. They see the life of a disciple. And it begins to perk interest. That's the path. Yeah. The rock doesn't allow roots to grow. I think that's where we need to be working on a fellow that we're sharing with, let's say someone like in the path, and they got rocks in their path. Well, we help them dig some of those rocks out so they can fully give their hearts to Christ. A lot of theologians say this guy isn't a Christian, the guy in the rocks, but it says he receives the word with all joy. So whether he's a Christian or not, I don't know. But I do know that we can take the time, if we will take the time in a relationship with this guy, if we care for him, if we love him, to help him dig some rocks out. If you go through Europe, you see these rock fences. Those are all testimony to a farmer who took the time to get those rocks out of the field so that the soil could be usable. And the testimony that the rocks are gone is the fence. We got to start digging out rocks out of people's lives and getting them out so that the root can grow deeper. It can be a rock of legacy of a family history of anti-church, anti-God that we have to overcome. A, a legacy of abuse, a legacy of isms, alcoholism, addictions that we can help by addressing before they become Christians, pulling some of those rocks out of their life, and then afterwards. But it causes us to realize that we're in this for the long haul and it's gonna be messy. Because digging in the rocks of a person's life isn't pleasant, and it's time-consuming. The thorns, we have to do the same thing as rocks. Thorns grow in the rocks, by the way. They don't require, it seems like, the root system that other things do. And we want to help get rid of the thorns. The thorns are the things that when a person begins to grow, chokes them. Maybe it's a relationship with a man or a woman. Maybe it's love of money. Maybe it's the love of life itself. Maybe it's pride of life, whatever it is. We want to address it before Christ, when they're a babe in Christ, and as they're growing in Christ. So we have earned the right to help them pull weeds. In my late 60s, I'm still pulling weeds out of my own life. And God sends guys into my life to speak truth to me. I'll never forget, this is about 25 maybe 30 years ago, but just an illustration. This same guy went to his house and he told me if I talked about Jesus, he'd throw me out. I got to introduce him to Christ. He became a Christian, one of my dearest friends. He came to Colorado where I was pastoring and didn't like the way I was talking to Dee. So a few months later, we were back in Oklahoma and he and another friend who'd seen the same thing picked me up. We were going to go just running around as we did often. And they began to confront me about the way I was talking to my wife. And I didn't even hear it. They were talking about my tones. I don't hear my tones. And Jim made a fist and stuck it under my chin and said, Story, if you don't start talking to your wife more gently, you're going to eat this. Well, I got the point. A lot of people would be turned off to making a fist and mm. stuff. I understand that. But it registered with me. I'm grateful guys have had the freedom 
over my entire journey to come to me and say, you need to address this. And it has helped me keep the weeds out of my flower bed. I'm just a weed patch, but people help me pull some weeds. I received the seed of God's word. I became a flower bed, but the weeds keep attacking. Cindy has a garden and uh, doggone it, she plants all these great seeds and uh, has to just tend them with the greatest of care and do all kinds of things for pests and, uh, and all that. And then the weeds, we don't even try and they grow like that's crazy. Right. That's right. Uh, that, that seems to be the truth in that's life right. too, doesn't it? Uh, the, well, good, the good stuff that that's grow right. easily. That's why discipleship is so imperative. I think part of our job, Steve, in discipling people is to be there to deal with unsuspected buried rocks that will reveal themselves, weeds that will grow when you've done everything. You spread all the spiritual roundup you can spend on anything you see, and they still pop up. That will happen all the journey. We've got to be committed to each other is that we give ourselves not just the gospel, as it says in First Thess 2, 7 and 8, because they've become dear to us. I'm grateful for the people that in my journey, Max Barnett, John Crawford, and Jim White, and others, who cared enough to speak truth to me about my weeds. Hmm. I'm grateful for people who pointed out what my weed patch was like before Christ, how big my rocks were, and then took the time to get rid of some rocks and pull some weeds, and they've still been in my life pulling weeds to this day. Right. My wife's a weed puller in my yeah. life. Wives are great for that. That's right. And my kids are, are men now. They're great about helping me spot a weed that I missed. One final question, I think, as we look for the folks that uh, would be ideal, what would you say characterizes the person who's fourth soil? I think they're the available guy. I mean, they just seem to be more interested than most. They don't seem to have some of the anchors the others do. There's no relationship that's dragging them down. If they're single college kids, for example, they're not in a dating relationship. You're using anchor in a negative in connotation a negative as though that you're dragging this anchor behind the boat. That's yeah. exactly correct. They don't have that. They don't seem to be struggling with addictions. They just seem to have an honest thirst to find out more about this Jesus. And they make an honest inquiry. And then when you begin to meet with them, they do what you ask. Because you're not asking for your ego. You're asking for their growth sake. You're asking for their benefit. And they respond positively. I've worked with guys over the years that just eagerly did whatever I said and then more. Well, you want to keep that guy. Uh, I've met others that just fought you tooth and nail. Never had their verses, never had their Bible studies, never had a clear testimony of how they spent their time during the week. And then others were just open and honest. So I think availability, they're teachable, they're open to learn and grow, they're eager, they're fat. Faithful, available, and teachable, yeah. as you navigators say, and me too. We've added another one, at least locally, an S, so that we can call them fast instead of fat. You know, we live in a very politically correct world, so we, we agree. You know, it probably sounds bad to say uh, they're fat, so we're, we're calling them fast now, adding self-initiating. Yeah, that's excellent. So I think there are just a number of qualities. Others may look for other things, but I think the evidence of the good soil is apparent. They're the person that goes and tells somebody right away that they've met Christ. You don't even have to tell them to sometimes. Sometimes you have to, but many times they just initiate and go on. 
but then they come back to you because they need help to do it effectively. Uh, they sense a need to pray and they can't get enough. So the good soil, and there's degrees of what that looks like in that spectrum of good soil, but it's quite obvious. Mike, we could do this longer, but uh, just for the sake of the uh, normal show duration, let's call it quits today and just promise we'll do some more at some future date, hopefully. It's an honor. Thanks for the time, and uh, it's always a joy to spend time with you, so thanks for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to Radiate. You can continue to listen wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect to us online at osunavs.org and on Instagram at osunavs. See you next time, and until then, keep radiating the message of Jesus.